Coming up today, coronavirus super spreaders, how Beijing crushed a spike in cases and the death of the Great British Office Sandwich. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Amit Walla. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when Apple came under fire for its hostile app store rules that demanded is given a cut of any money made through apps downloaded on its platform. The European Union has launched a formal probe into the practice, which it believes may be distorting competition. Ailing real estate giant WeWork triggered a second round of mass redundancies in the UK this week, ahead of plans to relaunch its business strategy in July. Sources said that 200 roles could have been affected in the cuts. This was also the week when Amazon thwarted the world's largest distributed denial-of-service DDoS attack. Amazon's cloud service, which hosts a large portion of the world's websites, was hit by a 2.3 terabits per second attack. And finally, this was the week when the UK government abandoned plans for a centralised contact tracing app in favour of an alternative approach developed by Apple and Google. The government attack The government app only detected 4% of contacts between iPhones compared to 99% for the tech giant's approach although Apple and Google's technology was weaker at determining the distance between phones. It is still unclear when the contact tracing app will actually launch in the UK. World-beating test track and trace system, Amit. Am I right? Well, you know, I, I always say in a pandemic, it's better to take your time and, and really, you know, be very thorough and make sure you get things right. And even if the app doesn't launch until two or three years later, you know, that's as long as it's world-beating at that point, that's probably the way to go rather than actually making something that works straight away. And it's not as if the speed argument holds up either, not that you're actually seriously making an argument, but countries like Germany and Australia initially went down this centralised approach that the UK has spent the last several months blindly running towards, and they realised that, heck, this isn't going to work. Germany's released its decentralised coronavirus contact tracing app, and it's already been downloaded by 10 million people in just a couple of days. Germany had, well generally speaking, a good pandemic. The UK has had one of the worst responses in the world. So there's that cheery thought. Amit, could you cheer us up with a magpie update, please? Well, it's not that cheery, to be honest. I haven't really seen a lot of them. I think that now that they're kind of in the the teenage phase of their life, they're just not really coming around anymore. They never visit. You know, I just feel like they've abandoned me. Uh, And yeah, I maybe see them once every couple of days now as they come and raid their old nest for twigs, basically. So... Yeah, there's very, there's very little joy there. Um, th- does anyone else have anything nice happening outside their window that we could uh, move on to now that Amit's just got teenage magpies? No. <laughs> no, nothing. No. All right, well, the void awaits. What did you learn this week, Matt Burgess? Uh, this week I learned that Britain's oldest tree is believed to be the uh, Fortingale yew in Perthshire with an estimated age of between 2,000 and 3,000 years. That's a great fact. Did you go to a certain book of world records for that? Uh, no, I saw I saw your fact in the notes uh, about the world's oldest door and decided to <laughs> see if there was any overlap, but there's not. Spoiler alert, Jesus. Well, yeah. Britain's oldest door, I learnt this week, can be found in Westminster Abbey, 
The wooden door was made from a tree felled in the year, well, in or around the year 1032 AD and was constructed sometime in the year, in, in the decade 1050. There you go. Door facts. Good. Yeah. So that, I saw that. that. Was it the Vikings? The tree would have seen the Vikings and it would have also seen electric cars. I saw. I did steal it from Twitter someone's fact. tweet. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I verified it. And according to the Westminster Abbey website, which I believe to be a, a reputable source on Re Westminster Abbey news, it is in fact true. And there's a very, very detailed blog entry about this door if you wish to find out more. Natasha, what did you learn this week? No, I continued along the theme of very old things, but not to do with doors. Actually, I looked at dinosaurs. So um, a dinosaur with very impressive armoured plates across its back became mummified around 110 million years ago after enjoying one last meal. And now we know what it is. Um, so it's basically a load of fern leaves, some stems and some twigs, which doesn't sound surprising, but uh, it was really, really well preserved and it's shed light on the definitive evidence of what an actual large herbivorous dinosaur used to eat. So there's, there's a fact for you. They Thank ate you. plants. Thank it's you confirmed. for the fact. Yeah, confirmed. you're welcome. <laughs> very good. Uh, Amit, I'm very excited for your fact. Yeah, I like that I've, I've got a fact about the Catholic Church and it's still the most recent fact by about a thousand years on the, <laughs> <laughs> the latest podcast about the latest news in tech, science, business and culture. Um, I, uh, I learned that the Pope can't be an organ donor because his body belongs to the Vatican. Now, legally, how does that work? Well, I mean, legally, the Pope's... Or so this all came to a head in 2011 when uh, Pope Ratzinger kind of became the Pope. He was quite an advocate of organ donation and he had an organ donor card. But, uh, yeah, there was some controversy because uh, the Vatican were basically like, no, no, those organs belong to us. Uh, so, you know, I suppose if you live in the Vatican, you're under the jurisdiction of that tiny city-state, which is basically run by the Catholic Church. So they can, I guess, I guess you know, say that those organs belong to them. Um, and in the past, actually, Pope's organs used to be kind of removed uh, at the point of death so they could be stored or kind of mummified. That's, they stopped doing that in 1903. Um, so... The whereabouts of uh, the, the the Pope's organs since then are unknown, or at least I don't know them. I'm sure someone Thank you does. Thank very much. I, that is absolutely astonishing. So did like a member of the Swiss Guard take away his organ donor card as he walked into the Vatican for the first time? Or yeah, I guess so. Yeah, or maybe they just uh, you'd think that maybe they just followed him around and you know make, tried make to sure ward off anyone. Make sure he give up. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Don't even think about it. Uh, yeah. Okay, so a, a challenge for next week. Everyone has to bring more recent facts. Uh, something a bit more contemporaneous than the world's oldest tree, Britain's oldest door, and something about dinosaurs. And I guess even the Pope. I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's old stuff. We are, as you say, a podcast about the future. Speaking of the future, seamlessly segueing onto a reminder about the Wired podcast pub quiz. You can join us live on Wednesday july 1st at 8 p.m london time to watch the wired podcast team compete for the trivia crown which is currently proudly held by matt reynolds you can play along at home as well and ask us any burning questions you might have the first show was a huge success and we want to make the next one even better it all takes place on zoom to register your place head to tiny.cc forward slash wired quiz Two. Matt Burgess, that URL again, please. It is tiny.cc forward slash wired quiz two. And that's a numerical two, not the word two spelled out, just to be clear. Our first story this week, Amit, is all about 
super spreaders. Yeah, that's right. So we're kind of five and a half, six months into the coronavirus pandemic, but we're still not really sure exactly how the disease spreads. I mean, we have some idea, but we don't have a really accurate picture. So we don't know, for example, what role people with no symptoms play in transmitting the disease, how long people stay infectious for. But what we are understand, we're, we're starting to understand that uh, COVID-19 or coronavirus doesn't spread evenly across the population. It's not a simple case of, you know, one person gives it to X number of others and those people give it to the same number of people. Some people spread the disease more than other people or pe- the disease spreads in some situations more than it spreads in other situations. And this phenomenon is known as super spreading and understanding it's going to be really vital to managing COVID-19, particularly particularly when we enter into this kind of new phase where the disease is sort of plateauing and maybe, you know, falling with some slight peaks here and there. This is going to be crucial to kind of keeping it at bay. So what are some examples of this? So um, in early March, we um, we looked at this in a story for the website this week, Matt Reynolds wrote it. Um, so in early March, a choir group in Washington State hosted a practice for 61 of its members. Uh, the group were kind of together for a couple of hours. They shared snacks. They practiced their songs. This is at a time when the coronavirus outbreak was still quite early stage in the US. There were only two confirmed cases in this county in, in northern Washington state where the choir was being held. Um, but then two weeks later, 53 of the 61 people that were at this choir practice had reported symptoms. 33 of them tested positive, three were hospitalized and two had died. So this one choir practice became the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak. So clearly within this situation, one person that had the disease or one or two were able to infect a huge number of people that were around them when you know, the, the the general consensus, I think, or some of the thinking had been that actually you needed to be quite close to people in order to, to catch the disease. So this super spreading event maybe cast some doubt on that. Um, we've also seen similar incidents uh, more recently than that. So researchers in Hong Kong um, found that 20% of COVID-19 cases and that accounted for 80% of all transmissions. So a lot of people don't give the disease to anyone else. Um, and then there's a few people that give it to a lot of people. So, uh, in one cluster, the study identified 73 infections were linked to a single individual attending bars in a nightlife spot in central Hong Kong. Uh, the same study found that of the 349 locally transmitted cases they identified um, in Hong Kong, so ones that weren't imported from elsewhere, 196 of those 349 were linked to just six events, six super spreaders. So this is all about how the virus uh, sort of... It- the transmission happens within communities and we're talking about cases where you've got people that are interacting with lots of others that are spreading it around a lot rather than sort of like cases being imported as we sort of saw very early on um in the in the pandemic so like this is super spreaders as an idea and as a concept has been around for a while but why why does it matter now i guess so i guess the reason it matters i mean yeah you might think that oh well you know we're socially distancing anyway we're washing our hands actually it doesn't really make a lot of difference but it it, it really does impact how you treat the disease we're, we're used to seeing these charts which show that you know like on the government briefings they show those charts where it's like one person gives it to two people and you see that kind of exponential um effect but um that's actually like an oversimplification um so over here in particular we've talked a lot about the r value of the coronavirus which is that a measure of that metric of like how many people on average each person infected with coronavirus passes it on to um so the r right now i guess is around one or maybe slightly lower than one in the uk um in certain areas of the country it's slightly higher but um now some um epidemiologists think that another number not r might be better not like it might be better to look at the, the k number rather than the r number so k tells you how transmission varies across a given population so 
a low K value suggests that a small number of cases are responsible for large amounts of disease and transmission. That's what they kind of found in Hong Kong, where you had these six super spreader events kind of causing hundreds of cases. So a low K number probably has an influence on the kind of measures that you put in place and the kind of health interventions you put in place to stop it. If you can identify where these super spreading events happen, uh, then you can take measures to kind of mitigate them. And mercifully, we won't be talking about the NHS contact tracing app on the show this week. But Matt Burgess, just to bring you in here for a sec, something that the NHS did want to do with the contact tracing app, which is why it said it was going for this centralised system and eschewing the Apple and Google approach, was that it wanted that granularity of data. It wanted to be able to understand how very, very local outbreaks happen and the sort of situation in which they happen. And by having a higher resolution of data and a centralized database where they could compare lots of different events, the idea would be that they could go, oh, there's lots of outbreaks in churches in this region. And they could really zoom in on the specifics of local outbreaks, which is something that people argue a decentralized system won't be able to do. So we won't be able to understand from the data we're collecting from these contract tracing apps how these super spreader events crop up. Is that right? Yeah, so I think it all depends on the types of uh, apps that are being used. But I think that it's one of these issues where um, because the apps are so untested, we don't necessarily know what scenarios they would be good in, what ones they wouldn't be good in. Um, the UK's approach before it obviously dropped, it was obviously, as you say, to collect a lot more data about how people are transmitting the disease between each people. And maybe there, maybe the app would have been able to provide a little bit of information about sort of one person that that's come into contact with lots of other people and then being able to track that back. But I think part of it is uh, having that wider track and trace system that can really sort of identify these things. Because when you're talking about super spreader events, there's uh, a lot of it is very sort of personal and sort of around the people and the places, which is some of that data which wouldn't have been collected by sort of the UK app or others. Yeah, and Amit, in the story that you're talking is through, there's a number of examples of super spreader events and quite a detailed analysis of how they came to be so what turns a situation into a super spreader event yeah so there's there's kind of parallels between the hong kong case and the washington case so a large number of people spent an extended period of time in very close proximity so in the choir practice the chairs were like six to ten inches apart the session lasted two and a half hours people are obviously singing so you know kind of expelling potentially expelling kind of virus particles and stuff like that um there are kind of three main things that epidemiologists say that we should be paying close attention to so it's tempting to think of super spreaders as individuals and you know the, these people are responsible for kind of spreading the disease widely but actually it's more about the environment that they're in and, and that's probably a good thing because maybe it's easier to control those environments so the three things that epidemiologists talk about are the three c's so close spaces uh, so that's buildings with kind of poor ventilation or rooms with poor ventilation, close contact, so lots of people uh, being close together, and then crowds, so a large number of people in that space. So you can see why things like restaurants and bars might be the last things to open. Um, so like the epidemiologists suggest that governments should try and find ways to prevent those kind of situations. So uh, avoid indoor spaces. So that's why a lot of the advice is geared towards you can meet people outside, but don't go in their homes. Um, and uh, I guess crowded environments are more of a risk as well because um, like loud environments, according to STEM research, might be a risk because it means that you speak louder, which means you're more likely to uh, expel uh, particles of fluid during speech. Uh, that's some kind of ongoing research. It was not entirely clear 
how COVID actually spreads. Um, transmission, it suggests that the transmission is larger through droplets and coastal sneezes that, that small particles may float in the air in poorly ventilated areas. So it's, yeah, uh, poor ventilation, uh, close contact and crowds are the kind of three main issues that we need to consider when we're kind of opening up things. What can we do about this? Because obviously we've got a situation at the moment where the government is very much incentivized to open up buildings again. We've just started being told that we can go back to shops um, there seems to be a lot of contradictory evidence that's out there um, where you, you kind of see the government going one way and you see the signs of saying that we should go a different way. So, so what exactly can we do about it aside from, say, personally, we're going to stay indoors and can avoid going to places where I'm going to be in close proximity to other people? Yeah, but I guess it's about finding ways of kind of mitigating the risk without uh, destroying the economy. So I guess that the government have got the kind of difficult position to where they're like, they want to reopen restaurants and bars, but yeah, like research suggests that like doing that indoors is a really bad idea. So you'll see things like a lot more tables outside. And I think there's been steps to kind of relax the restrictions on which which restaurants and bars can like kind of put tables outside. Like even near me, like yesterday we went out for a walk and there was like lots of bars with people on the street, you know, serving people through a hatch. Um, and although people were kind of, probably more crowded than you would, would ideally want uh, on the street, it's still less bad for transmission than if they were outside. So um, that's one thing you can do. And then the other thing you can do is re- uh, increase ventilation in indoor environments, which could reduce the risk. So obviously that's an expensive thing to do to install these kind of ventilation systems into existing buildings, but that could, ha- uh, we think, play a quite a big impact in terms of reducing the probability of transmission. Um, and then the final thing is like, if a super spreading event does happen, then it's all about contact tracing again, you know, uh, finding people that have been in that environment and urging them to isolate. So um, with the choir example in Washington, they were able to kind of find those people relatively quickly and, you know, persuade them to isolate if they weren't already. Um, so, you know, by it's a combination of kind of controlling the environment, but then also putting the structures in place that will help you to handle these super spreader events if they happen. And the reason that this story is particularly important now is that the examples that, particularly in the US, Amit, that you talked about at the top, led to this huge wave across the country or part of what led to this huge wave. And we didn't really understand them as super spreader events then, but we sure as hell do now. And we've seen a number of examples all around the world of breakouts in meatpacking factories and markets and hospitals and understanding very quickly that a super spreader event is starting to unfold and shutting it down really quickly is going to be super important to ensuring that countries around the world don't end up in these economically and socially disastrous lockdowns again, which seamlessly brings us on to our second story, Matt Burgess, which is all about what's been happening in Beijing over the last week, where there was an outbreak. There'd been absolutely no coronavirus circulating locally for months. And then all of a sudden there was. Yeah, so until a week ago in Beijing, uh, there had been, the the city had been free of um, local transmission for around 55 days. Um, The only cases that we knew about and that had been sort of publicised or detected had been people returning from uh, other countries. Um, And there's obviously systems in place for quarantine and things like that anyway. Um, So they're they're pretty controlled in that way. However, there are now, um, at least at the time we're speaking, there are 158 new cases that have been discovered all in one uh, fairly 
uh, localized region. Um, and the first of these was a, a 52-year-old man who tested positive. Um, and through sort of the system of contact tracing and, and tracking, checking where he'd been and etc., um, this sort of like localized outbreak was um, tracked down to a, a wholesale food market. And this market claims to be the largest wholesale agricultural market in Asia. Um, the, the reporting that we did around this is saying that it's selling lots of different products, lots of different food. Um, it's a place where people go very regularly. Some people even sleep very locally and around the market. Um, it's a big sort of cultural point um, where people gather quite often. Um, and the first uh, patient had been there. They'd purchased some fish from there. And there was some sort of rumors within Beijing and, and parts of China that um, the uh, fish that they purchased, the salmon, that, that could have been sort of infected with uh, coronavirus. But um, that isn't the case. That's been proven not to be. Fish, as far as we know, do not carry um, any of the uh, any of the virus. Um, however, um, when sort of this outbreak was being investigated, uh, other sellers of, uh, of produce in, in the markets uh, was actually found to be um, having the virus on and around their workspaces. So their, so, uh, their chopping boards, places and uh, everything that they were doing in terms of like their job. And essentially this, um, this initial outbreak was pretty much um, sort of has been compared to what happened in Wuhan in some cases where it's quite concentrated um it's related to people uh who are coming into close contact with others selling produce um and the workspaces and the and the, the, the equipment around them and just the fact that it was at a market in a big chinese city it shows how much potentially we've learned about how to prevent another pandemic of this nature happening that completely takes over the world and, and kills tens, hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people by the time we find a vaccine. So in, in this instance, it feels like the authorities in Beijing are on top of it. And the level of detail that they have on how this virus is spread around. So they found it on chopping boards. They found it on the boots and shoes of people. They found it in fecal matter. They found it in sewage leaks. So they've been able to really, really, with a huge level of granular detail, find out how it's moving around and shut down, break the chain of transmissions but this is still one of the biggest outbreaks we've seen in china since that initial outbreak in wuhan so how have officials responded this time and what can the rest of the world learn about it yeah so obviously things are very different now uh six months down the line we have we know a hell of a lot more about uh coronavirus than we did at the time there's still a lot we don't know but this has been sort of a moment of a, a real test moment for uh, authorities in china and the containment measures that they put in place um, and it's, it's worth noting that china and particularly beijing is uh, very different to lots of some parts of the world in terms of it's the scale of it it's huge there are millions of people living in cities it's Beijing is one of the biggest cities in the world, uh, if not the biggest, and there are very few cities that sort of compare on that level. So when you are dealing with these sorts of incidents on in a city the size of Beijing, you can't do things at like a very small level. There has to be scale to the, to the response. Um, and essentially the response from the Chinese officials has been uh, one that we've seen around the world. It's testing, tracing, isolation. Um, so over the last few days, there are, and these numbers have probably increased since we, we wrote about them, uh, 200,000 people have been contact traced uh, through those that have been to the market, their connections, etc. Um, and of these, and, and a greater number, uh, 365,000 people have been tested. 
Um, so each confirmed case has had a free line uh, description aired on some local news channels. Uh, these are anonymized uh, broadcasts, but they include details on the infected individual's age, where they're from and where they've been, which gives people a bit of a sense of like if you've been uh, in touch with somebody from a local uh, residential block or something like that, then they... It, it provides like an extra layer of precaution essentially and and in those communities deemed high risk so if somebody uh from your uh from your block of flats that you lived in had been to um the market or been tested or been contact traces um then their health codes on apps have been turned yellow um so these are the system of apps which have a uh yellow green and red status um, and this yellow status means that people must uh, quarantine at home um, there have been questionnaires from employers um, asking where their employees have been uh, if they've visited the market and if you have been you then had to go for a test so it's essentially sort of like the scaling up of testing and tracing uh, and isolating as a process this is basically like the you know this is the scenario that everyone here is really worried about right this second wave scenario and, and like the concern that if we lift lockdown measures now, we might have to kind of go into lockdown again in a couple of months' time when the second wave hits. But that's not been quite the case in Beijing, right? It's not as if things are in like a full lockdown like they were in the very, very early days of the pandemic over there. Yeah, so I think it, there is a case of you need to apply... Uh, some sort of proportionality to every single instance where you do see uh, an outbreak um, and probably people on the ground have obviously got a better idea of uh, what the potential scale of this could be I'm sure there'll be more confirmed cases over over the next few days it's it's hard to sort of say but uh, but Beijing has not fully ground to a halt um, so one global health researcher based there that we spoke to said that uh, authorities are a lot more prepared for the second wave they've been anticipating it it's something that essentially all of the work that's been going on has been sort of gearing too um uh, but there have been some local um lockdown measures put in place so uh, around the market a couple of uh, officials were dismissed from their post the market's manager was fired um as a, as a warning to, pe to for people to take this seriously um primary schools and secondary schools are being closed shops and restaurants uh, and offices actually do remain open for now they haven't been deemed to be uh, too much of a risk that they should close down um some uh, residential compounds where people live in tower blocks and things have been closed because of a number of cases um, and another couple of smaller markets uh, where the virus has been known to spread to uh, have also sort of closed down as well. Um, for people that are wanting to travel and leave Beijing they must show a negative test uh, within the last seven days uh, to stop the, the potential virus uh, trans. Uh, transmitting outside the city um, and sort of like state-owned telecoms companies are sort of handling data to authorities to help with tracking um, there's also sort of like a level of individual personal response that comes with this as well so people taking the correct precautions washing hands wearing face masks volunteering in um, uh, in levels of contact tracing and essentially um, this is being treated as sort of like a, um, a full-on approach to sort of how how to handle sort of a second outbreak there are levels of uh, action taken from health authorities from from local state party groups and people acting on their own and taking responsibility for for themselves as well there's a level of seriousness and urgency to this response that perhaps is a bit alien to people listening in the uk and perhaps the united states as well it's really really interesting to see and obviously a very different government model and societal norms in china as opposed to in in democracies like the uk or the us but they're really clamping down on this stuff and stopping it from getting in any way 
out of hand. It's quite impressive to see. Is there a model here for the rest of the world or is this the sort of thing that's only really possible in a more authoritarian regime like China, Matt? I'm sure there probably are some lessons here that other countries can look at and can understand and see the response of. I think that one of the, the stark things from sort of our reporting of this and the understanding that we have from reports coming out of Beijing is that things have happened very quickly. Um, the measures have been taken very seriously and um, the structures that have been put in place over the last six months are there as a failsafe, in it, I guess, in some ways, um, you have this testing, tracing, isolating system that everybody understands, everybody knows about, um, that is able to operate quickly. And I think that particularly if you take the UK as an example, we're still very much in the process of building up this infrastructure to actually be able to respond to uh, to cases and to potential outbreaks. And this seems like at this stage that Beijing has done a good job in, in locking down um, places that potentially need to be locked down and responding to it. I mean, obviously time will tell. Over the next week, we'll get a bit more of an understanding of this um, and how much it's spread. But it seems from a first um, first bit of analysis, at the very least, that the response has been swift and hopefully successful as well. And the UK is probably, and a lot of countries around the world, are probably only a few weeks away from being in a similar situation to China finds it in itself in now where local transmission is incredibly low or non-existent and you need to be really, really quick and effective. So when we were talking at the top of the show about the slight flip-flopping, um, to put it mildly, about the NHS coronavirus contact tracing app, having these systems in place and working really, really effectively is going to be hugely important if we're to, to return to any kind of normality. It's a really fascinating story with a lot of insight from people on the ground in Beijing. I do recommend you check it out. We'll include a link in the show notes as we do to all the stories that we discuss in the show. We'd also like to hear your thoughts on that story or anything else we've talked about today. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Please do get in touch. Our third and final story, Natasha, is about the Great British Sandwich. Yeah, I wanted to kick off by asking you guys a very important and character-defining question, which is, what is your favourite sandwich, James Temperton? Uh, if I'm buying from a shop, I tend to go for the pret tuna, uh, mayo and cucumber. If I'm making one at home, I quite like coronation chicken. Mainstream choice for pret, but good choice for personal sandwich. Thanks. Amit. <laughs> Um, I quite like a New Yorker, so salt beef, uh, mustard, pickles, that kind of thing. Fancy. Matt Burgess. Uh, I have an issue with sort of all um, shop port sandwiches that are produced go. in sort of like um, produced in that like mass produced way of being in packaging. And like, I don't <laughs> think any of them are good, basically. I, however, if I was in a shop and had to pick one, I'd probably go for uh, salmon and cream cheese. What? That is, wow. that is the, that's the, <laughs> the worst. <laughs> that's genuinely the sandwich that all other sandwiches shun. You know, that's that's like, actually what I had for breakfast on a bagel. It was very good. Yeah, but it's a bagel. Do you see what I mean? I do it's, see. It's what going you mean. out and choosing that of all the sandwiches. I'm sorry, I can't actually um, judge you too much because I ate the same lunch for a long, long time. Um, I think it was about two years. Um, I had plain ham sandwich plain hula hoops, um, multivitamin, tropicana, um, and a tin of cream of tomato soup. 
uh, and it, it was all less than three pounds from Sainsbury's. Not that I'm plugging it, but um, what a deal. I was very unhealthy. Yeah, it was very unhealthy and very sad. So what, why are yeah. we talking about sandwiches, Natasha? Oh, uh, well, so sandwiches are a hot topic right now because, as you know, um, a lot of us have spent a load of time making lunch at home. And in the meantime, the big sandwich industry has been suffering. So if you've been hankering after a cheese and pickle, ham hock or tuna mayo, we've got some very bad news for you today. The days of expenses, expensive lunch and sandwiches or cheap and disappointed ones with flaccid bread and disgusting fillings like um, Matt Burgess's one might be numbered if office workers don't start going back to work quickly. So we spoke to some small sandwich shop owners this week, prep management and even a sandwich impresario, there is such a thing, to get a good sense of how the crisis has impacted businesses. So before coronavirus, the UK food to go sector was worth £18.5 billion and sandwiches were worth basically um, almost half of that, £7.85 billion of these sales. So when coronavirus hit, the industry went into complete freefall and commuter trading dwindled to basically nothing as workers stayed at home and made lunch with what they had in the fridge. Um, Adderley Foods, one of the UK's largest sandwich manufacturers and supplier to Cafe Nero and Aldi, went into administration at the end of May and they blamed coronavirus for 2,169 redundancies. Further job losses are expected. So according to Nielsen, um, sales of sandwiches through through convenience stores and delis in the four weeks to May 23rd were down 57.7%. So basically no one is buying sandwiches even if people are making them. The biggest problem though for these businesses is rent. So even though shops and chains might be able to offer takeaway sandwiches the customer numbers during the lockdown have made it not profitable to even make sandwiches let alone stay open i um i suspect i might be uh, alone in this but i actually went to prep the other day because the one near me is open just to get a, a bit of nostalgia for being in the office and uh, how was, was it of, it was i mean it was fine right it's prep so it was sort of a solid seven out of ten uh, you know nothing more nothing less but it was it was good it kind of felt me it made me feel like a little bit of normality um, so obviously, Natasha, as you said, a lot of these uh, shops are really struggling. Some of the suppliers have gone. So what's going to happen now that people are kind of starting to tentatively go back to work into the office? Yeah, so you might think because lockdown restrictions are easing a bit that it might bring with it a lot of sandwich hungry customers that decide, you know, I don't really have anything else to do. I'm going to go back to my normal lunchtime routine. But that's not happening. So prep stores, which dominate the entire of central London, I believe there's like four or five within sort of a stone's throw away from uh, the Condé Nast offices where Wired is based. Um, And they're in basically every train station, every high street, they're everywhere in the UK. They began reopening in mid-May, but footfall has remained low. Uh, So aside from Amit, no one is really wanting to go back. Um, The FT reported that Pret's seeing a footfall at a fifth of pre-pandemic levels as it opens branches after lockdown so they've basically decided to reduce the menu so you might have noticed when you went in Amit that there were some sandwiches that were missing there's some options that aren't there because they are reducing the amount of things they produce to make sure that they don't have a load of waste Um, they are also pivoting to delivery so they've they've got a veggie prep spin-off which is available now on Deliveroo um, and supposedly the delivery function for prep is up 15% in the last two months so that's how they're trying to make up a bit for the fact that people aren't willing to queue outside of Pret um, to buy their very expensive sandwiches. According to Pret, who spoke to um, us for this article, people really missed the chicken Caesar and tuna and cucumber baguettes. So, um, yeah, James's option was the most popular of, of the options for everyone. So it's a good if, if you think about... 
It is good. It's good value, to be fair, for the right, expensive right, ones. Right. Anyway, so um, <laughs> if you think things are bad for Pratt, you can imagine what it's been like for sort of local small um, shops that don't have sort of the weight of all of those sales. So we spoke to a um, the owner of the Fal- Falcock Cafe called The Wooer, um, whose customers are predominantly local professionals, and things have been very tough. Basically, closed down during lockdown, it's surviving thanks to the government's bounce-back business loan and furlough schemes. They said if customers don't start trickling through their doors soon, it's hard to see how they're going to survive because they opened in Christmas 2019, so the timing is terrible for them. And you can repeat that kind of issue across thousands of businesses up and down the UK. I mean, for me, one of the nicest things about lockdown is being able to make a good lunch or have leftovers from dinner and not having to like sling them in a Tupperware. It's been quite nice to enjoy good food for three meals a day and not feeling like you have to rush to get a really, really nasty sandwich from a supermarket or whatever. But for people that are hankering for that refrigerated sandwich joy, what does the office lunch of the future look like? Is it going to be the same or is it going to be even worse? It's going to be very, very different. So basically, you're right. We had a huge um, tendency towards, you know, buying something quick, something easy, something cheap, uh, something possibly not very good for you. And um, now people have sort of a mounting pile of dishes at home, but they're making um, their own meals rather than going out. So for, for the people who do decide to go back to the office or do decide to travel in to try and get themselves a sandwich, um, queues are going to be more commonplace. Um, fewer people are going to be allowed in. So it's the same scenario as any shop. You will have social distancing. Um, service will be slower things will take longer and they're going to have a limited amount of products. So you might walk in and you might not find anything that you like anyway. Um, so in other words, our days of quickly popping out to buy a sandwich or soup will be completely gone. Um, for people who decide, decide to come back to the office and you know sit in complete isolation there and have their lunch alone, this is going to be unbelievably depressing because it adds to it. You could be queuing for 10 minutes at your local sandwich shop, walk in and there's nothing that you can eat anyway. So it would be considerably more onerous, but there is a silver lining. So the sheer volume of demand for sandwiches has meant that a lot of us were relying on those overpriced baguettes or disgusting kind of bean pasta, you know, meal deal things and this might be a chance to kind of break those habits uh, throughout lockdown and get get into some better kind of ways of eating really to avoid talking in any more about sandwiches what's the best lockdown lunch that anyone's made has anyone really uh, cracked out their culinary skills matt burgess you're, you're quite the cook uh, actually, no, I've really struggled with lockdown lunches um, just because, I don't know, I don't normally take much time away from working around, in the middle of the day. Um, so end up just like struggling with making anything that's nutritious. Um, like what, probably the lowest point was uh, <laughs> some plain noodles and that's it. Just <laughs> just a packet of noodles, no flavoring, just plain. Did you uh, cook them water very quickly. <laughs> That's disgusting. That is pretty it's bad. Um, Amit, have you managed to uh, to do anything no, that's particularly um, inspiring? deeply boring as well. Yeah, so I've been doing like carrot sticks and hummus. Did that for about three yeah. weeks. Got bored of that. Now I'm doing peanut butter on toast. Yeah, and and, uh, so and one of those like you know those um really? you know those like Dutch waffles you get where you're supposed to melt them on top of like a tea or a coffee. Stroop waffles. Mm. Stroop waffles. So yeah. Mm. So I don't. I don't really like hot drinks. So I've been melting the the waffle under my toast. <laughs> so I, I, every day I put my waffle on my plate, do my toast, spread peanut butter, and then let it melt. Uh, yeah. So okay. So yourself also. and 
Matt Burgess have kind of gone full student. Natasha, have you been uh, rustling up anything particularly inspired? So I have to say I've done zero cooking since lockdown began. Zero. Um, I have three meals a day provided to me uh, by my partner. Um, if I don't say that, I think he might kill me. So um, he's discovered that he can make um, tuna like wrap things that he then sort of puts on a grill. So you've got those nice lines. Um, so it's quite, become quite gourmet in my house and I'm quite, quite enjoying it. I don't want to go back to work ever again, basically. It's great. So, plain noodles, peanut butter on toast, and I haven't cooked a single meal in four (laughs) months. This is perhaps the most depressing two minutes of my life. Uh, Thank you for those contributions. What was in the podcast email inbox this week? Matt Burgess. Yeah, so we had a few emails. First one was uh, from Jish from the Netherlands, uh, writing in about DuckDuckGo and the story we talked around last week on um, browser and uh, search choice. Um, so Jish said some very nice things about the podcast and that they're a long-time listener uh, and they're also a long-time list, uh, user of DuckDuckGo. Um, they wanted to highlight that in most cases it works fine, but um, in the Netherlands their search results are not really um, very localized. They're not very good at sort of like uh, finding local businesses and that side of things, which after having spent some time with the company is definitely something that they know about and are working on. Um, and Jish also says that um, they never do online shopping anymore uh, using Google um, because they've seen uh, on the odd occasion when they have um, those products appearing on their Instagram feed the next day uh, and were very, uh, the the tracking that was done by Google was very much highlighted through their sort of like one-time use of it again. So yeah, a a good email from Drish. Thanks very much for getting in touch. And one more email to read out this week, Amit on crowd noise. Yeah, that's right. Victoria wrote in about the the story we did on how the Premier League's adding like artificial crowd noise to um, its matches, like many other sports leagues. So we got our first taste of this over the weekend to uh, to mixed reviews. I guess I quite liked it, but it wasn't to everyone's taste. Um, Victoria points out that this is kind of a similar question to what we've had on late night kind of live comedy shows, where there's normally like a studio audience. So they have a difficult decision as to whether to go with no noise you know the host is presenting from home via zoom or whatever or to kind of pump in fake noise so uh she she mentioned stephen corbett's late night show which she watches on youtube um and says it's been super weird watching the intro without the kind of laughter and cheering of the audience but she also says it would kind of be equally weird to kind of pump in like fake laughter like they used to do on sitcoms you know in the 90s and 2000s it's kind of less common now um it actually dates back to the 1950s, uh, which is a question Victoria asked, that kind of use of fake laughter. So, yeah, the option... So the Premier League's given the option to kind of turn on and turn crowd noise off. So maybe live comedy shows could do the same. They could have the option to kind of turn on that laugh track if you want the the feeling of having a, a crowd there or to turn it off if you don't. And, and they're generally pre-recorded, so it would be a bit easier to, to do. Um, there were a few instances over the weekend where the director of the crowd noise was clearly searching for the right button to press and there was like a very noticeable gap between a shot being taken and the crowd going ooh or whatever or just not going ooh at all the thing yeah. i found really difficult with the artificial crowd noise particularly since the premier league restarted is i really know what each ground sounds like 
and I kind of know how people respond to players in certain situations. So watching the Bundesliga, it was sort of less of an issue. And I think maybe the Bundesliga system might be a bit better than the Premier League one. But my ears were spending the whole 90 minutes trying to listen to the crowd noise and work out what was going on. And it just became a major distraction. So I switched to the channel that didn't have the crowd noise. And there was something quite calm and relaxing about Kevin De Bruyne spraying the ball around in complete silence like you could hear the scuff of his boot on the ground and the sound of leather on boot it was kind of nice yeah I think um I think the problem part of the problem I found was that because there's, su- there's such a kind of variety and diversity of football crowd noises and there's like actually quite a specific language and there's probably thousands of different reactions depending on whether a shot's where a shot's taken from or you know there's a specific noise that a crowd makes when two players on the same team collide and one of them looks badly hurt, right? Uh, And that's not something that you can just pull up and press the button for because it's such an unspecific, rare occurrence, but it does happen. And there is a noise for it. And I think if you played a football fan that noise, they would be able to tell you what had happened without even seeing any of the pictures. So kind of filling that in is going to be quite tricky. Um, Although I must say, like, I haven't actually tried it without the crowd noise, so maybe I'll do that this weekend. But I quite liked it. I think it just helped make things feel more normal, which is maybe what I want at this point. There was something, particularly on players from the same team, smacking into each other and there being potentially quite a nasty injury, which is what happened in the Manchester City-Arsenal game when Edison came out and completely clattered the poor young defender. Without the fake crowd noise on, you could hear the sound of human body on human body, which was quite upsetting for one and maybe made it sound like a worse incident than it was. But listening to that with the crowd noise, the crowd never changed. It's this sort of low-level murmuring and cheering and maybe a couple of songs about Manchester City. Two players collide into one another, another's potentially unconscious on the floor and the crowd's still going like... It just doesn't... As you say, they can't find the button for like sudden and massive concern for players' safety. It just doesn't exist. So it's nice, but I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it without the crowd noise. Anyway, I could tediously talk about this forever, but I won't. Podcast.wired.co.uk. If you want to tediously talk about Premier League crowd noise anymore, I'd be delighted to hear your thoughts on that or anything else that we talked about on the podcast this week or anything else that's on your mind. Open up your email inbox and send us some words podcast at wired.co.uk we'll finish the show as we have for the last few weeks with a reminder of the podcast pub quiz we'd like as many of you to join us as possible up to the zoom mandated limit of 500 you can join us live on wednesday july 1st at 8 p.m london time to watch the wired podcast team compete for the matt reynolds trophy or trivia crown you can play along at home as well and ask us burning questions it was really good fun last time the whole shebang takes place on zoom head to tiny.cc forward slash wired quiz 2 to register your place matt burgess play us out with one more read of that url please tiny.cc forward slash wired quiz 2 and that's the number 2 not written out absolutely superb thank you very much for listening as ever we'll see you again next week take care goodbye bye bye, bye.